Laura Johnston is very happy as the week comes to its close because snow is in the forecast. <laughs> she spends a god-awful amount of money on skiing equipment and ski passes, and she was worried she might not be able to get to use them this season. So good news for Laura. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn. I am here with my colleagues, Laura and Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi. Good morning. Good morning. I, I got to say, I was excited to see snow flurries this morning. And I was like, ooh, are we going to get any accumulation? But yeah, Boston Mills is opening on Friday afternoon for the first time this season. So skiers, we will get out. It, it's not going to be great, but best we can do okay let's start our discussion are plastic shopping bags finally going to be illegal in Cuyahoga County Layla we got a note from a reader asking us about this and I thought this had been killed I thought the state legislature had abolished the ability of counties to do it and I sent a note back saying isn't there a moratorium and they came back and said no that would have expired in the fall I'm like, man good question let's go find out I know and who knew there's real news there I know and it actually turned out to be a lot more interesting than we thought it was going to be so yeah it seems that the bags will soon be outlawed in Cuyahoga County the county's bag bag ban was supposed to kick in January 1st 2020 but you know, the entire world hit a little snag in early 2020 and suddenly plastic bags fell lower on the list of priorities. And and also there was some concern at the time that reusable shopping bags could harbor the coronavirus. So the county delayed that ban. But then Governor DeWine issued a moratorium on municipalities banning single use plastic bags or, or charging consumers for them. So basically a ban on bag bans. And then in June, remember all the random stuff that was jammed into the state's budget? Well, one of them permanently banned governments from imposing a fee, tax, or other charge on auxiliary containers, so i.e. plastic bags. But that's just a ban on the fee. It's not a ban on bag bans. So now DeWine's moratorium has expired, and Cuyahoga County says they're planning on moving forward with the bag ban and will have a plan to do that by March. Reporter Caitlin Durbin reported yesterday that the city of Bexley outside of Columbus is in a similar situation. They're moving ahead with their ban as well. But they have to remove language from their ordinance that permits businesses to charge 10 cents per bag if customers didn't bring a reusable bag to shop. So I'm personally really glad to see this happening. I had pretty much figured it had all kind of permanently fallen to the wayside. So to see this come back online is kind of cool. Yeah, it is. And what's what's interesting, and Laura mentioned this the other day, a lot of merchants back when the controversy began a long time ago had switched over to paper bags and still are providing them. Yeah. yeah, I go ahead, Laura. I, it actually it wasn't it's happened over the last two years of the pandemic. I'm seeing more more stores go to paper. Like I got one from Kohl's on Monday and I was like, wow, I wouldn't have expected that. The dollar store is mm -hmm. handing them out. You get them at Home Depot. So it's funny that the market, maybe they're seeing bands in other places and just switched over their entire companies to it, but they're they're making the move even without being required to. But I, I never really bought the whole, you can carry COVID on your reusable bags. I mean, you could carry COVID on your clothes, your purse too. So I am glad that we are reinstating this. I was a county government reporter when Sonny Simon brought it up years and years and years ago. So I am glad that we are, are seeing it. 
I do give them credit for holding off because of COVID. At the beginning of COVID, we didn't know how it spread. It took a while to figure mm-hmm. it out. I mean, it, it was so much fear and anxiety. But it, but it, it, look, the best thing about this is you'll stop seeing them in the trees in wintertime, right? I mean, that's the, <laughs> they're the, just the eyesore all over the place, everywhere you go. And it'll be nice. And, to get and them one of the big ideas was to keep it out of Lake Erie because plastic is the biggest polluter in the Great Lakes. So that, that's a nice um, benefit. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stick with the grocery store theme, Lisa. Why are Northeast Ohio grocery stores suddenly cutting back on their hours? Fewer hours where you can get those paper bags. Well, it's it's a combination of factors, and I wonder if one of them hasn't been considered um, quite enough, but several d- grocery store chains have had to change their hours, and it's all because of staffing issues. Um However, a lot of them are saying that they're having a, a high quit rate, which is true across all food service industries, but nowhere did I see any mention that COVID was affecting these current staffing shortages. But anyway, at Heinen's, they have 19 locations in Northeast Ohio. Starting on the 10th of January, they're going to shorten their hours from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Giant Eagle has changed their hours by, depending on the location and the staffing issues at each location, also at their get-go gas stations, that's the same situation. Aldi is asking their customers to check online for their particular location to see what the hours are. Acme Fresh, which has several uh, outlets throughout Northeast Ohio, is sticking to their normal hours right now. Um, Constantino's, unfortunately, we lost the Constantino's here at University Circle during the pandemic because they couldn't keep going. But the one on West 9th Street will be closing at 8 o'clock and... um, like I said, their university circle store is closed permanently. And all of these grocery store chains held massive job fairs last fall, October and November, because they were trying to fill hundreds of open positions. And like I said, they're kind of blaming it. Some of them are blaming it on the quit rates. But I also think that staffing being sick is contributing as well. It has to. You know, there was a time that Laura and Layla probably won't remember, but there was a time in this country when stores weren't open as late as they are now. They would close at six or seven o'clock and and everybody patterned themselves to meet those hours. I worked in a grocery store when I was a teenager and that store did not go until midnight or, or around the clock. They closed at a reasonable hour. And I wonder with the mass resignation of people saying, you know what, I'm sick of this. They don't want to work overnight. They don't want to work till 10 o'clock whether we might get back to a time where stores close in the evening and are open on the weekends like Costco and people deal with it. I mean, I think most of the people on this podcast go to Costco and we don't really have a problem meeting the hours they're open, right? I have never been to Costco. I, I haven't day. either. Oh my God, that surprises me. I know, wow, right? Me too. Jeez, Laura, you like seem like the quintessential Costco <laughs> customer. I don't know what that means, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I am we... an Aldi shopper, though, and and I agree with with Lisa that that um, COVID is probably wreaking havoc on these places. And I think you're right, Chris. Like, I don't need to go to the grocery store at eleven o'clock at night. I don't need to go to six in the morning, even though it was convenient if you're going to the gym or something. And I think we're all just going to have to to get used to it. Because people don't want to do those hours. They want to spend time with their families or, or whatever else. It'll be interesting to see if we get back to there. It is today in Ohio. Did I miss the change in the county charter that put a height requirement on the county executive's position? <laughs> it seems like we've got a, a, a height requirement with the two candidates now running for the Democratic nomination. 
Big announcement yesterday from Brad Sellers, the Warrensville Heights mayor. So how is this race going to shake up, Laura? Yeah, Brad Sellers is in the race now, and I believe he's about seven foot tall. I don't know how tall Chris Ronan is or um, or Lee Weingart, who's running for the Republicans. But uh, Brad Sellers is the mayor of Warrensville Heights, of course. He's been the mayor for more than a decade now. And before that, he was the economic director. Um, the economic development director under Marsha Fudge for about a decade. So he's had a lot of experience here. And he basically says he wants to help improve the county like he's improved Warrensville Heights. He identified the top challenges, including building a new jail, the future of the region's airports, and putting the lakefront to the best possible use, which I am a huge proponent of that. He, want to sh he wants to shore up safety net services and support all of the counties, 57 municipalities and two townships. So he was a big supporter of Budish. He did not enter this race or even hint at it until Budish said he wasn't going to run again. Well, he should be careful of the ties to Budish because that could sink him. There is a great level of distaste for how badly Armin Budish has bungled the job, as we've discussed repeatedly. It'd be interesting to see if he disavows Budish because Chris Ronane, who is very tall, by the way, I don't know what his height is, but he's tall, <laughs> will will be running. We'll have to ask that when we do a profile. <laughs> Put little yeah. stats boxes in for everybody. But, but he will clearly be pointing out where county government has failed and how we have to fix it, that we need a truly Leader that can be collaborative and not venal and mean-spirited. Um, if if he does that and Brad Sellers doesn't do that, it's going to kind of put Sellers in a tough spot. The good news is, though, th these are both good guys. They're both good candidates. And and Lee Weingart on the Republican side, you know, solid guy, has very good background and theories. So voters, both Democrats and in the general election, will have a choice. In the Democratic primary, we didn't have a choice last time. Armin Budish got through it, and no sooner did he get through it than, than we got all the jail scandal and all the horrible things that happened. This time, Democrats will get to pick between two very, very qualified candidates. And then in the fall, Lee Weingart will be challenging them. So the general election voter will not just be stuck with whatever the Democrats did. Absolutely. It's a good thing. And Sellers can point to things that have happened in his city since he's been working there, the growth in um, the Marriott that added that was added in the Harvard Park uh, area and the stores and an Amazon facility. Also, he has some county responsibilities which right now, which I did not know, but I learned from Caitlin Durbin's story. He sees, sits on the board that oversees the Global Center for Health Innovation and supported it becoming part of the convention center. He's on the 11-member Cuyahoga County Planning Commission and on the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission. And he has in the past chaired the Public Works Integrating Committee. And this is a fun fact I had no idea. He's half-brother to Zach Reed. Well, and I suspect he he's getting into the race much later than Chris Renane, who has been running since last summer, building up his support. But Brad Sellers has something Chris Renane doesn't have, which is the sports mojo. He mm -hmm. was an NBA, NBA player, player. And, and Ohio State. Know, and people love the athletes. So, I, you know, I hope they debate. I hope this is robust. What the, the one remaining kind of factor here is, is will the Democratic Party endorse? Often when you have an open seat, you don't because you want the voters to have the choice. But the Democratic Party in Cuyahoga County is very heavy handed. He has a lot of support from Marsha Fudge, who hired him originally mm -hmm. in Warrensville Heights. So you could see the Marsha Fudge part of the Democratic Party putting a thumb on the scale for Brad Sellers and endorsing him, which makes life much harder for Chris Ronane. On the other hand, we've also seen some real dissent in the party. Uh, if you'll remember, there was a, a big battle for the chairmanship a few
years ago with Newburgh Heights mayor really putting his foot in. So Chris Renane might have enough support to overcome the thumb on the scale. It'll be interesting to see how that and- Regardless, though, we've talked about how there's not a lot of deep bench sometimes in the Democratic Party. And like, you're right, this I'm excited about this race. I hope they build each other up and not tear each other down. Well, the weirdest thing is there people are already trying to paint Chris Romaine as like a, a far left progressive in, in the Nina Turner vein. And it's like he spent 16 years in university circle. That is as stuffed shirt as you get. Right. I mean, it's like right. education and medical. And so it's just that's a weird tactic. I don't know that that can work. I we'll guess we see. shouldn't get him sitting like a picture of him sitting in a chair with mittens on outside or something. He'd be like some Bernie. <laughs> Okay, today in Ohio, is there any way to measure all of the help that was given to children aging out of foster care because of the efforts of Amber Donovan, who died this week? Layla, you and I had a relationship with with Amber Donovan. We ended up aligning our A Greater Cleveland Project with Mm -hmm. her work and got hundreds of people to volunteer to work with her, uh, both we were both very impressed with her. It's such a crushing blow that she's died so young. Yeah. Yeah. Her, the news that she lost her long fought battle with cancer uh, this week really hit us hard. Amber was the founder of Community of Hope. It's a nonprofit that forms what they refer to as communities of volunteers around a young person who's aging out of the foster care system to act as mentors and, and really a surrogate family. And that concept was based on the Open Table Model, which is a national organization. Amber had run an open table program out of the YWCA for a number of years and then improved upon that model in a lot of ways when she formed Community of Hope in 2018. She was just able to draw together groups of these caring volunteers to rally around young people and help them find that path to a prosperous adulthood. And and the outcomes were pretty incredible. We teamed up with her during uh, a Greater Cleveland at a stage in our project where we were looking for ways to engage the public in, in finding solutions to the issues underpinning poverty. We hosted a big event at our headquarters in 2018. About 300 people came out to that. And a lot of them signed up to participate with Amber. And eventually, the interest was so great that she decided to launch her own program and nonprofit. And in just a few years, she had launched dozens and dozens of of these groups of volunteers, each one focused on one young person who needed that, that social scaffolding in their lives. But, you know, Amber's cancer was so aggressive and she fought so valiantly, but she lost that battle two days ago. She was only 50 years old. And it's such a tremendous loss for the region. Um, You know, as a reporter, I've met a few few people as passionate about their work as Amber and also as capable of manifesting change. I mean, she she was really um, I mean, it was everything to her to see this nonprofit uh, achieve its promise. You know, yesterday I had spent some time thinking about the many, many conversations I had with Amber while I was in the thick of reporting for Greater Cleveland and and also while I was serving on a table with Metro Health's Open Table Program. And the one conversation that has always stuck with me was when my table mates and I had felt like the guidance we were giving to the young person we were working with was going ignored. And Amber kind of, you know, she gently reminded me that it's not about exerting control. It's about love. And she said that in these relationships, we must accept that we're planting seeds today for a harvest we might never see, and that years from now, the impact of our time together might finally bear fruit in the lives of the young people we're working with. And today, in reflecting upon the loss of Amber Donovan, I think that sentiment feels even more powerful when we think about 
all the seeds she planted. Well, when we did a Greater Cleveland, the goal from the start was to examine how poverty affects children to get people active in making a difference. So we said that from the start. This is not just about an examination of poverty. It's to activate people who want to be part of something. And we, we thought we'd have plenty of time to do that, but no sooner had that project begun where people were clamoring to participate. I mean, it, it was a very effective project that touched a lot of people. I mean, Layla, your work was a main reason for that. You, you and your colleagues really got deep into what was going on. But we had a hard time then finding the cause. I mean, I, I don't know how many different people I met with trying to figure out what to do, but I'll never forget the meeting with Amber. It was my last appointment of the year before the Christmas break. And I didn't know much about her. Several readers had said, you ought to check this out. I'd made the appointment. And I went over to talk to her. It was literally my final thing to do before I could check out for the year. And I, I just, I felt like I was in the presence of a saint. I mean, she just radiated inspiration. Walked out of that meeting. I knew we had it. I, I set up a meeting with all of you so you could meet with her. You all had the same, mm -hmm. same impression. That was the magic of Amber is she was just so inspirational and, and it activated the community in a way few people have. So really sad to, to see her go. She had told us about a few months after we started working with her that she was six or seven months beyond being declared cancer free. And when the cancer came back, we were worried because when you get the second round of cancer, it's all the cells that survive the first time. They're much more virulent. And she had a, a really tough time these last months, which she let people know about on Facebook. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What does Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost have to say about the concerns by voting groups and elections officials that any outreach they do to promote voting could get them charged with crimes? Lisa, it's taken him a while to kind of put his foot into this one. Yeah, it, it did. And, and I'm not sure that he really clarified things all that much, according to some people's opinions. But this is about this. And this bill was signed into law last year. The original intent of the bill was to prevent election officials like the Secretary of State from accepting private money, which Secretary of State Frank LaRose did. He took $1.1 million from Facebook's or Meta's Mark Zuckerberg. So there was a provision added to that bill to prohibit collaboration with uh, between elections officials and other groups and made it sound like it kind of was a misdemeanor. So Attorney General Yost was asked by alarmed election officials to clarify what collaboration meant. And Yost's answer that he provided yesterday, said the ban only applies when officials and private groups, quote, jointly administer a project, unquote. So it's a very general guidance. And it, and it doesn't supersede existing state laws that allow the Secretary of State to conduct voter outreach and education. So LaRose, who was not really happy with his bill, he felt like they should have, like, you know, talk to him about the wording before they passed it. So he's happy for the guidance that will be in place for the 2022 elections. But Aaron Ackerman, who's with the Ohio Elections Officials Association, says, okay, yeah, most of our concerns were addressed, but we still want to remove the collaboration ban for further clarity. So this is not quite settled yet. Also, the League, League of Women Voters, we reached out to them. We haven't heard back from them because they're still reviewing Yost's guidance. So we'll see what happens. But it all kind of centers around what does collaboration really mean? 
So if the League of Women Voters wanted to work with the elections office to help register voters, that wouldn't be allowed. They would have to do it on their own, it sounds like, which is kind of dumb. But, you know, a lot of the laws coming out of our legislature have been dumb and sinister. Um, Okay, well, good for Dave Yost for bringing some clarity to it. It's still a very strange law. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lake County is having earthquakes again. This happens a lot. Laura, how worried should we be? I don't I don't think we should be that worried. And well, this is where we hear about the earthquakes. It's not actually that many compared to a lot of places. There's been about 200 earthquakes with epicenters in Ohio since 1776. So I'm not I'm not feeling like I need to move somewhere else. But Wednesday's quake re- registered a magnitude of 1.9 on the scale that was about 5:25 a.m. and that was you know that was after the earthquake of 2.8 magnitude on Tuesday these are both near Timberlake which honestly I'd never heard was a town before but it's quite near East Lake right under um, and next to Lake Erie so earthquakes with a magnitude of 1 to 3 are not generally felt except by very few under especially favorable conditions Obviously, I I did not feel this at all. I do remember some people in our newsroom feeling one from Lake County before the pandemics, um, maybe a year before that. But it's not it's not like a daily affair usually. Yeah. But is it a sign that we're going to have a big one eventually? Is this little one's getting ready to release the big blow? No one said that yet. And this is the area of Ohio. There's two places in Ohio that tend to get earthquakes. One is in the Western seismic zone, and that's Allen, Oglays, Mercer, and Shelby counties. And this other one in the Northeastern Ohio seismic zone. And that goes all the way to Akron, actually. Uh, The biggest one was a 4.5 magnitude earthquake in Ashtabula. Sorry, that's not the biggest, but the biggest in recent history. It caused minor damage. So that's twice as big as the ones we're having. And that was only minor damage. Uh, The extensive linear features deep in these Precambrian rocks is known as the Akron Magnetic Boundary. And that's supposed to be the reason for some of these. But no one really knows the causes of them. And no one's sounding any major alarm right now. You're listening. Except except for maybe Chris Quinn. And he's going to say you were here first. (laughs) No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You're wrong. I'm not. I think... We are immune to natural disasters in Northeast (laughs) Ohio. Everybody should move here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How can Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb make the announcement that Shane Bartek, who was killed in a parking lot of his home by a carjacker, died in the line of duty as a police officer? He wasn't on duty, right, Layla? No, he he wasn't. And this is a very unusual ruling from the city. I don't I don't believe we've ever seen something like this happen before. Bartek wasn't on duty when he was shot and killed during this carjacking on New Year's Eve. But police and the city officials said that they reviewed enhanced video of the robbery and the shooting, along with reviewing Bartek's police training history. And they determined that Bartek had relied heavily upon his training and tactics to try to disarm his assailant that night. And because of that, his death will be classified as in the line of duty. Uh, the the significance of that ruling is that it unlocks benefits for Bartek's family, including financial that otherwise wouldn't have been made available. And it means that the city can help with Bartek's funeral, which is scheduled for Tuesday. And, and it also means that Bartek's family is eligible to receive financial help from the nonprofit Blue Coats, which helps families after police line of duty deaths. So, you know, Union Police President Jeff Fulmer applauded the ruling and said it's the right thing to do. The announcement of this happened via video, so reporters weren't able to ask questions, but 
Mayor Justin Bibb simply said that as a son of a cop, he understands the great sacrifice that officers and their families make in the name of public safety. But again, unprecedented. And I, I it's it's hard to see the justification here. Well, you know, I get I get the argument that the minute the crime began, he becomes a police officer trying to stop a crime. But but I mean, this is just not what that was created for. And if this is about financial aid for the family, there are other ways to do it. I I, I would wonder what the, the parents and children of police who were working and got killed would would think about it. It's it's just an odd one. And what's what also is odd, you, you heard the, the governor is talking about putting the flag at half staff for this. And it's like, wait, this is this is a tragedy. This is somebody who's home who was the victim of some random violence there. And, and that's really bad, but it's happened to a lot of people. I mean, how many children in Cleveland in the past five years have been killed by stray bullets and gunfire? And how many of them have the governor of, of Ohio talked about and said, I'm going to put the flag at half staff. They're just as tragic. I mean, it's just, this one throws me because he's not and There's a difference between this and a police officer who is working off duty. Because that's actually an on-duty officer. When you pay an officer to work off-duty, you're paying him to be a police officer at your business to keep it safe. But this wasn't that. I've never heard of this before. And it just seems like a very odd decision by the new mayor, uh, you know, almost buckling to pressure from the police union. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue that the moment he saw that crime in progress, he became a police officer. If he was not a police officer and he was being carjacked, he probably would have let them have the car. I, I just, yeah, I just feel like, you know, it's a 24 hour job. And, you know, as soon as he saw a crime in progress, his training kicked in and he thought, I'm a police officer. I need to stop this, even though it was his car. Layla, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that, that you know, the fly, flying the, the flag at half mass does feel like it's the it's placating the Blue Lives Matter set. Um, but, you know, to, to Lisa's point, um, yeah, I. I I don't know. I mean, I think don't don't the police tell people to give up their car in a carjacking? Like, isn't that the wise thing to do? I mean, I I don't know. And and you know, before the podcast, we were also discussing. You know, would the circum would we feel differently about this? Would we we be questioning it if he were coming to the rescue of somebody else? Would that make us feel more comfortable with this ruling that he was acting in the line of duty? Because you know, Chris, you had pointed out he was acting in self defense which is, you know, what a lot of people do. There were people, you know, that woman was just shot in University Heights for fighting back. And, um, I, you know, everyone was kind of like, oh, that was kind of a dumb thing to do. You know, give up your car. Why would you do that? Uh, you know, why would you why would you resist a carjacker who has a gun? And, you know, I don't know. I, I have so many mixed feelings about this. Well, I, I just get back to we're, we're lionizing him. And it's a tragedy. I mean, this is really sad that that he lost his life to, to this. But if you want to honor him, Instead of going this route, go deal with the judges that let his killer repeatedly walk after being accused of violent crime. I mean, there's other ways to honor him that don't really kind of dishonor all the other people who have been lost to gun violence. I mean, really, I'm asking, has Mike DeWine ever once focused on the death of a child in Cleveland to gun violence? But all of a sudden now he's he's coming out of the woodwork to to, to, to honor this guy. It's just, it's a strange one. I, it was a very odd decision in the, what is it? The third day of Justin Bibbs time as mayor. I hope it's not an omen that he's going to be buckling to pressure from the police. You're listening to today in Ohio.
Why is the cost of popular at-home coronavirus tests suddenly jumping substantially in Northeast Ohio? Lisa, we've all had a mad rush on these things because we all want to know if we we're going to get sick. And now a company is going to be profiting even more greatly from them. There was a White House agreement to sell these uh, COVID tests at cost, but that expired actually in mid-December. It's the Abbott Binax Now test that was sold for three months at Walmart and Kroger stores for 14 bucks a pop. Well, 14 bucks a pop at Kroger and then 19.99 at Walmart. But um, as of earlier this week, Kroger is now charging $23.99 for the test, although they are currently out of stock. And they said that they, you know, fulfilled the agreement for a hundred days. So they went, you know, past, you know, the agreement uh, parameters and they also sell other COVID tests and they're hoping to increase availability. So, yeah, I mean, as soon as they didn't have to sell them at cost, they decided to raise the price. So hmm, to make of that what you will, uh, White House uh, spokeswoman Jen Psaki says, you know, the, their objective, you know, is to scale up access to free tests, which we are supposed to be getting in the mail and haven't yet. And she's hoping that there will be a competitive market with these tests to drive down prices. But right now, Walmart and Kroger are saying we're charging more. Yeah, we're supposed to have a system where you can get your free test by mail by the end of this month. That's what Biden announced. We'll see if he makes good. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I'm going to leave it there, guys. We've had unimaginable technical difficulties today. Lisa, I'm not sure you've been recorded. And Layla, you have dropped off a record four times. I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. We'll have to see if we can make it a podcast. <laughs> thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Friday, I think. <laughs>